Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a new interview with one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash the director's cut. This episode takes us behind the scenes of John Favreau's new feature film, The Jungle Book. The film adapts Rudyard Kipling's classic tale, which follows the young Mowgli as he is raised by wolves in an Indian jungle. Favreau's take features newcomer Neil Sethi as Mowgli, placed in an environment realized by using the industry's most cutting-edge CGI to render the animals and setting. Actors Idris Elba, Ben Kingsley, Lupita Nyong'o, and Bill Murray are just some of the talents that lend their voices to the movie. Following a recent membership screening at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Favreau spoke with fellow director Donald Petrie about the obstacles he faced while making The Jungle Book. Favreau discusses why he cast Neil Sethi after auditioning 2,000 kids to play Mowgli, the adaptation choices he made to differentiate his film from the popular Disney version, and how he was able to create opportunities for improvisation on a film with such meticulously planned visual effects. Enjoy. I gotta tell you, uh, this is my second time seeing the movie. Um, the the uh, first time I saw it in 2D, uh, and I and I'll be perfectly honest. Usually I go to. If, I'm a little wary of the 3D movie experience. It really works here. It's amazing here. It is it is right up there with the only other 3D movie I've ever really enjoyed, which is Avatar. Um, and uh, it's it, you really outdid yourself. I have to ask you, how many animals were injured <laughs> in the in the making of this movie? So so just to be clear, uh, I know it says uh, filmed in downtown Los Angeles, but we really did film it on stages uh, downtown where you know where they where they film Mad Men, uh, similar shows, uh, but we kept it all here, which is nice and. Um, And uh, and there were no animals uh, filmed, so everything was digital. The jungle was digital. Yet we built pieces of set that weren't much bigger than this stage, and it was just a big math problem, a big puzzle. And we could talk about how we did it, but it was uh, took a lot of a lot of planning, and uh, and we used a lot of the same techniques actually that Avatar used, and worked with uh, Rob Legato and Joyce Cox, and um, and uh, uh, you know uh, Andy Jones, animation supervisor. Because I felt the same way. I felt that there was some, when I went to see Avatar in IMAX in 3D, I got it. I was like, okay, I see what's going on here. And, uh, and part of that is using a similar camera system. We, we captured it in native 3D digitally using, um, the Alexa and the Pace camera system and, uh, Simulcam and Photon and Motion Builder, a lot of the same tools that honestly, uh, Jim Cameron pioneered yeah. uh, and we inherited a lot of the R&D that he had done and, and then built on top of that so so you're dealing with interocular you're dealing with all that other yeah it's a math problem for any of you you know who haven't filmed in 3d it is uh, it is beyond difficult uh, and a lot of um, pre-visualization I'm sure has to take place 
how many Mowgli's were injured in the making <laughs> of, of this well, film? It, it, what's interesting is by using so much blue screen uh, and also working with Disney where they have very, very strict internal rules on top of the strict rules that we already have to protect the safety of our young performers. Uh, he was never more than 30 inches off of a mat or with a spotter. So it was actually incredibly safe. And that's what part of what gives him that look of reckless abandon is as he's jumping from branch to branch, he's over some padding. And we had worked with him with parkour teachers in, in a gym. And, and then when we went to the set, everything was about that getting just that element. It was almost like an element shoot geared just around that kid. And so uh, everything could be focused in at that point in the process on his performance, on his safety, on his stunts. And we had other young performers, too, that also would either double him. And then we had a lot of motion capture as well. Uh, so sometimes there's some of these Mowgli's are actually digital Mowgli's that are based on other performers. Did he did he wear the motion capture dots? Yeah. or I mean, if we want to get into real inside baseball here, uh, it was a it was a kind of a we made the movie three times. Really, we started off. I really wanted to emulate the Pixar model at the front end. I've always really enjoyed their films and uh, in talking to John Lasseter and talking to the Brain Trust, you know, and also in just in hearing them in interviews, they keep hammering that planning and story is the most important part of the process, um, far outshadowing uh, the, the, the technical aspects, which everybody gets uh, enamored with, but really it's about story. And, and so I think part of the reason that animated films have a better batting average is that they really stress test the story. This is going all the way back to the days of Walt Disney when it was always a very expensive technology to do animation, whether it was cell painting or rendering time, you don't want to do anything that's going to get cut out and, and is on the, on the cutting room floor. When you, when you film a live action film, there's a sense of discovery as you're in production, you go to the editing room, oftentimes scenes are removed, sometimes reshot. But in animation, they, they really try to avoid that. And so you go through a process where you work with the writer, you work with the editor, you work with production designers, you work with a story department, a head of story, and you pencil everything out and put those together in show reels and watch the film in pencil form before you ever uh, move on to the next step. And so we did several iterations with storyboard artists and story artists and, and found a version with scratch tracks that we could actually watch. And as, as, as John Lasser says, if it plays in pencil, you know it's going to be great once you, once you do the, the beautiful work to it. And so we took it to the point that a Pixar or a Disney animation would, where they would go into layout. And on an animated film, what you then do, once you sign off on the story, is you then get into the computers, you start moving the characters around, you start setting the lights in the computers, you start choreographing, moving the camera. But in our case, that's when we jumped into a motion capture film. And so the second leg of the process looked a lot like if you were on the set of Avatar. And we and Rob Legato, my visual effects supervisor, helped me build out a front end there that allowed me to be there with my crew in a volume. We would design the set with my production designer, Chris Glass, and we would build the set virtually and have uh, in the volume build platforms and and pieces, set pieces that would represent where the virtual set was. If we looked on the monitor we would see the entire set. So as you move the camera, you'd see the backgrounds. But if you just looked through, if you just looked in front of you, it was all a white stage with motion capture suits. And we would have Neil Seti, who plays Mowgli, wearing a motion capture suit. And if we had Baloo, we would have two actors in motion capture suits, like a vaudeville horse act. 
And if they moved around, you would see all four legs moving with a bear. And so I could use my, if I wanted to place extras, I would have my ADs there uh, uh, roughing that in. I had my cinematographer setting camera angles. I had everything I would have. And so I felt very comfortable. Me looking over somebody's shoulder doing previs, I don't feel like I, I, I could be, be a good director. That's not how I work as a director. I work with my crew. And so we collaborate as you would on a real film set. And that's where we would get the angles, set the cameras. We do the performances separately. Uh, of the voices in in sound booths with the actors together whenever we could and with either motion capture or very specific three camera reference for the animators and with my editor we would cut those together like a radio play we would act it out in the motion capture set give him every angle as dailies and so we made the movie as you would and if it were a film like Avatar or like Polar Express we would then hand that over and begin rendering but then we did it again a third time which is where we did the live action shoot. And that's where it got a little bit uh, unique. And I learned a lot from watching uh, what Alfonso Cuaron did with Gravity, where he would have very specific angles planned out. He had very specific previs, and he treated the entire shoot like an element shoot where you had the lights predetermined. Everywhere the kid was, we would film him, and we would build just enough set for him to interact with. And so if he walked 20 feet, we would build 20 feet worth of set. And we would do, you know, hair, makeup, the whole deal, and just get his angle. We had a whole cut of the film from the motion capture version behind a curtain, and we would cut it in because it was digital. We would cut it in as we went before we moved on. Before we checked the gate, we would go back, cut his shot in, and make sure it cut into the film that we had already built. And so over the course of production, we replaced every shot with a shot that matched the lighting and matched the angle and had all the set built for interaction, whether it was a shadow cast on him or him touching a piece of uh, scenery, we would build that. And then, then, we, you know, then we would be done with production and begin to do turnovers of sequences and then it resembled your standard visual effects film. I'm gonna take you right back to the beginning. Story. How did the story evolve from when you first came on to when you got to that place where you were actually gonna be able to, I mean, you, you eventually put that story, like you said, into drawings and then screened those drawings. Right. Did you have a test audience? No, we didn't test you... it at that point, but we did share it with the studio because Disney was used to working with animators. And so right. they were used to looking at it in rough form. And, and that, it was actually a really good thing because there was no... You know, normally on a, on a live action film, especially as you, uh, if you, if you have some experience working with uh, making movies in the studio, gives you a lot of room. There's this time when you hand over your director's cut. And it's always a nail biter at that point. And you have X number of test screenings built into your contract, but, but you're kind of uh, gearing up for a potential uh, conflict of, of opinions of what the movie should be at that point. But there was never that moment where you're presenting your cut and hoping they'll like it or hoping the test audiences like it. Because we were collaborating from the beginning and showing them it in its roughest form, we were often in agreement on what needed to be fixed because it was such a slow process and it was so rough. Mm -hmm. And so as the movie emerged, they were always weighing in and always felt a partnership. And I felt that it was probably the smoothest the smoothest creative collaboration I'd ever had. And this was a property that I didn't bring to them. This was, this is a Disney property. They were, 
they had a vested interest in it working out and they had a clear point of view as to what the Disney version should be. Uh, I also wanted to make the Disney version. I wanted to make it a PG version of the film. If anything, I was pushing them to make it more like the 67 film and less like the Kipling. So, you know, you have a generation of filmmaker that grew up as fans of this work. You're seeing it with the Star Wars franchise. You're seeing it with Creed. You're seeing people who grew up with this content and wanting to put our own spin on it, but embracing it, not feeling that I think we have to fight against it, uh, but instead put a new spin on it. Maybe so you talk about your, your, your a new spin. So story-wise, when you were when you were working on it, did it evolve anywhere it to did. try to get that that? Spin, as it were? It did, because I, I think, you know, the formula, I, I'm a big fan of the formula that, that Walt Disney used, that Jim Cameron uses, uh, that George Lucas uses, which is you take the old myths, you take those Joseph Campbell mythic stories, archetypes, and you go to the purest form of that story, that in this case, a coming-of-age story of the feral boy raised in the wild, and you use that as the basis and combine that with the most cutting-edge technology that you can. And that's why Star Wars hit me so hard when I was young. That's why Avatar hits us, you know? And that's why, you know, Disney did not work from original stories. He worked from folklore and fairy tales. And then, but in his day, we think of his films as old fashioned, but he was at the cutting edge of tech with audio animatronics, with multi-plane uh, camera moves. That was the 3D of his day, uh, uh, rotoscope. So he would take it and dazzle people you know, when people saw Snow White, it was mind-blowing to them, but yet the story was old. And so it was really about what's the best version of the story. And thankfully, I did have Kipling to go back to, which added some depth, the treatment of the elephants, let's say. It's much different in this film than the 67. That's from the Kipling. But it added a spiritual dimension to the character. And the relationship with, with nature changed, too, as the themes began to emerge. And, and uh, Idris Elba playing Shere Khan is a very elemental shadow figure. And so just studying the archetypes, understanding story structure, understanding the three-act structure, the, you know. Did you make any discoveries along the way, like like adding in the elephant sure. to saving the, the baby yeah. elephant? Yeah, so the, so the elephants were something that were referenced in a, a treatment that I had received when I first came. And in developing that, it seemed that, the, and also thinking of the 67 film where he had, he had some um, a connection with the little baby elephant played voiced by Clint Howard at the time. Uh, and, you know, it was a sort of a thrown away comedy bit, but I was like, if he has a connection with that elephant, and the elephants are seen as the creators, almost the spiritual embodiments, manifestations of the spiritual on earth, if he had a connection to them and proved himself, and so the rescuing of the elephant um, was something where it, it seemed like a real a, 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 a heroic plot point in our hero coming of age and being the one, you know, which is also part of the metaphor, right? That he's he's the special one and that the other animals see that he interacts with them. That seemed like an opportunity. And then the resolution at the end, not to spoil it for the podcast listeners, I'll, I'll try to be, I'll try to avoid uh, being too specific, but but in the resolution to then call that back. Mm -hmm. So what you the choices you make earlier, and this comes also from being a writer, being an improviser, always looking to the choices and seeing if you could call back things that you set up earlier to help resolve and pay things off, as well as his tool building skills as a different form, a uh, different manifestation of 
his human quality. Go back to episodes of MacGyver. Right. And Iron Man in the cave, you know, to be honest with you. Uh, but then also differentiate that there's a positive version of being a, a, a human and, and, and then the fire representing a different aspect of it. And all leading to a theme that emerged, you know, because I also changed up the end a little bit, how it's resolved. Because in the older versions, he uses the fire to prevail. But in our moment in history, you know, 100 years ago when Kipling was writing, our relationship with nature was much different. Now, our generation, our children's generation, uh, we find ourselves in a position where we have to define our relationship with nature. Otherwise, it's going to change forever. Um, and so maybe as kids watch this, it's, I think it speaks to where we're at, where we can fit in as humans with nature and maybe feel more like a steward of nature as opposed to nature as being an obstacle that we have to overcome or make subservient to us. Now it's something that we have to fit in with and protect. And so in, in updating those themes, it informed the story points as well. Let's talk about casting because you talked about being an improviser. I look at the line from Bill Murray saying, hey, you're, you're very close to being extinct. Yes. Um, was that he scripted? No, 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 no. He improvised. Those are the kinds of things that... That line, he improvised almost everything. It is certainly paraphrased. <laughs> but I built it into the process because I love the spontaneity. Film is a medium where you have to get spontaneous moments. What do you love about The Godfather? You know, the, the story is wonderful. And it has, it has to work as an opera, as a story. But I love Luca Brazzi rehearsing, right? I love, I love James Caan smashing the camera that he swore to me on the set of Elf was improvised. <laughs> uh, uh, but all those little moments, those little mistakes, those little spontaneous flashes, it's a very intimate medium. And so, and you don't need that many of them. You just need to catch something real happening. You don't have to duplicate it. You just have to figure out how to match up and that was something that, that uh, Jim, Jimmy Kahn talked about that, that Francis uh, Coppola said, is always match up. Whenever something happens unexpected, make sure that you get your other angle. Go back, turn around again. Make sure you could use that piece. And that's why I, I often use multiple cameras to the chagrin of my cinematographers. Uh, I like to run multiple cameras. So in a film like Iron Man, for example, where I knew I could not mess with anything we had planned for the digital work, with all the Iron Man suit stuff, I couldn't change it. I was planning that before we ever started shooting. But anything with him and Gwyneth, I would have two cameras and encourage improv so that you had some sparks of, um, of spontaneity to help cut against what could otherwise seem like a very planned, rigid film, which an effects film could be. In this film, I was, t you know, the challenge was every shot is a visual effects shot. Every shot's animated. Every shot has to be planned. And so I use the recording of the performances as the opportunity to improvise and get the actors together and not do it like a traditional animation where you repeat the line one after the other if possible. Get them in the room, get cameras on them. Deliver those cameras and the, the data to the animators so that they can animate based on their choices and allow for improv. Based on their choices or your choices? Theirs, always. To me, it's all about casting. That's my, that's... That's the only area of directing that I feel very confident about, my ability and everything else. I, I get a lot of support from a lot of other good people, cinematographers, visual effects supervisors, editors, very collaborative. Composers. Composers, of course. But when it comes to casting, and I learned this last time we talked like this was about chef, yes. uh, we, you know, it's the ingredients. You talk to any chef, they go to the farmer's market, and they, if the tomatoes are great, 
Tomatoes are on the menu. They don't make a tomato dish if they don't have great tomatoes. And so to me, casting, if you get the right cast, you just have to be very simple in your direction. And all the choices they make will be correct. So you talk just have about to guide casting them. Mowgli. Mowgli was a, was a hard one because Mowgli, any of you who've worked with young actors, it's one thing to ask an actor time to... Time limitations. There's time limitations. There's also screen time. He's in almost every scene. You have to have a kid that you enjoy watching for an hour and a half. It's a lot to ask. And we, we looked at 2,000 kids all across the globe. And this kid had never, Neil said he had never auditioned before even. And we were looking, and you know, it's scary after seeing that many kids and the clock's ticking, you know you gotta go. But if you don't have that kid, if you don't have the right Mowgli, you're, you're, you're done. And so we were looking, and I saw this one kid in Manhattan, from Manhattan, and he just made me smile. He didn't care, he wasn't an actor. He was having a good time, he starts doing karate. He starts saying, I'll do my own stunts. Uh, and he had a lot of attitude, and I liked him. And I'm a New Yorker, so I like his sense of humor, you know, just the way he groups words. And, and I remember, Mo and he reminded me of Mowgli from the animated film. I knew I wanted to connect it with the animated just the way he moved. And it was one of those things where you watch him and you smile, and it's not something you could teach. You know, it's like Moneyball. He just had a good swing. And I knew I could, you know, and he was nine years old when he read. I knew I could, with the amount of time 14 I 14 when he finished? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's, he's 45. Uh, uh, he drove me here. Um, uh, he's 12 now. And, uh, and I knew that I would have that, that whole run-up and the motion capture portion to be. So we, would, we got to act the whole movie once together before we ever filmed him. So it was like a great rehearsal period. And I also knew as an actor I can get in there with him and, and perform. I knew I couldn't just treat it like a regular element shoot where you put an X on the, on the, on the blue screen and say, say your lines to that or have a script supervisor reading and say, look at the tennis ball. I had real actors there to help him through it, run lines with him. I would do stuff with him, like when they're singing Bare Necessities, I'm in the pool with him, splashing him with water. You know, to I was going to say, I could tell when he got squirted. Yeah. Yes. That he he didn't had, know that was coming. He did not know. I had my I had my effects people give me a super soaker, and I hit it, and then right in the middle of the take, I just squirted him, and that's why his eyes light up. And so it's those moments you need. And the other trick was, and this is I don't think ever been done before, and it was really a good one. And I invite any of you in this situation to do this too. Instead of having an eye line, not even actors, I had puppeteers. I had uh, Jim uh, Jim Henson Studios built puppets for us. Often the right, like for Baloo, we had a full-size Baloo puppet. It helped with framing. And puppeteers are wonderful improvisers. And if you've ever seen a kid in a room with a puppet, they lock right in on that puppet. And so as, you know, there's some behind the scenes stuff online, you'll see sometimes it's a full puppet. Sometimes it's a guy in a blue, uh, a photo blue suit with just little eyes on his hands. If we needed to be able to uh, uh, pull a mat from, from, uh, from, the, from the blue screen and he was, went behind the kid. And so they were puppets. So if you saw this, came to the set, it would look like a children's show. And then we slowly added back those, uh, those digital elements. So everything was about getting that spark and getting all the things to, to match the lighting as they did again with gravity, using a lot of the same techniques, those, those, uh, those lighting panels, pre-animating certain things so that it cast a proper shadow. Like when the elephants passed by, we had, we had, um, 
panel, lighting panels that had the elephants going by, using projectors with silhouettes being projected. So we used a lot of technical tools because we had planned everything uh, so, so um, meticulously. And that's part of why the visual effects look so convincing is because the visual effects people were there in prep, they were there on the set, they were partners throughout the process and they treated it like a visual effects shoot. And, and the key to that is interactivity. That's it. It's, it's when, when he's hugging mom, you see his hands in the fur. Now, was that puppet slash? There was, no, there was no fur. It was a puppet that had some give to it that we could frame properly so he could interact. But that's really the showiest stuff, honestly, and the, and the next level stuff that you haven't seen as much before. A, a, a human running their fingers through digital fur is about as difficult of a task as you can give your visual effects vendors. And I gave them fair warning. I said, we need a half dozen of those moments in this movie where, because it's the thing you always avoid and the thing subconscious that tells you you're looking at, you know, you're looking at a gag. Yeah. And people have been doing this gag since Walt Disney, since Alice's Wonderland, you know, with a live action kid in a, in a, in a digital, in, a, in, a, in an animated world. But the thing that separates this, and even the people who worked on Avatar said there weren't these types of shots in that. It's one thing to share a frame, even, because you're kept honest with the lighting. But when you actually touch, when he's riding on the bear. Yes. That in the water. In the water. In the water was a little bit, you could fudge that a little bit, but when he's actually riding the bear like a horse or riding on the, on the buffalo, mm -hmm. you, it required us to build the model ahead of time to animate the model ahead of time, to use the Maya files to drive a gimbal that was built to articulate with the same anatomy as the digital version. So it forced us to do all that stuff up front so that when he's riding on the back, the way the hips and the shoulders are moving, it looks great on the set when you're just, when you're just rocking a person like on a teeter-totter or something like that, but when you get into the visual effects, it starts to look weird. It slides around. Mm -hmm. So we we forced ourselves to commit to the actual walk cycle of that piece of film. And so when the kid's riding on it, you'll see his weight shifting, his shoulders are moving, he's correcting himself. All those subtle little things that tell your brain subconsciously you're looking at something real. And they named that device that we built the Favorator. So that's my, uh, my big legacy. Oh. So we have a big horse that moves, that moves and, and they would jokingly call it the Favorator. So that's my... That may be my legacy I think in generations I, to come. I, I'm, I'm, I'm always going to think of you as the favorite. <laughs> That's my autobiography. Uh, you know, that was a gift from Rob Legato, that name. So, and, and from, and from <laughs> listen, the other, the other thing that was so amazing that, again, gives it that sense of reality is you have a close-up of Baloo and a fly buzzes yeah. next to his ear. I think it's Baloo. It's Shere Khan, It's Shere Khan, and, and, and then his ear twitches. Yes. And, and, I mean, how do you... It's delightful. Do you, but do you plan that? I yeah. mean, you oh, must yeah. plan, plan everything. one of those That's the interactive things. That's me tasking the animators with, don't make these animals do things that real animals can't do. Make them do real things, and that way you're not asking the audience to buy more than just the fact that they're talking, which we were very nervous up till not that long ago. If that would break the whole thing, talking animals is not something that always goes well. 
to say the least. Right. But in Babe, I think it didn't, you know. In Babe, I wasn't like, oh, the pig's talking. I, I hate this movie. I was like, I was on board with Babe. And part of it was the story. And, of course, you know, the, the wonderful, uh, you know, just just the, the whole wonderful vision for it. But also part of it was that they were using, for the most part, animatronics and mostly live real animals that they would just do a little uh, digital patch on the mouth. But you were watching the pig shake and move and shift his weight like a real pig would. And so we limited the movements of our animals to what real animals would do. And so we did. Did you ever film real animals or no, just we, had research? No, because of, because of things. So the internet now, we would pull clips. And so I would sit with the animators and they would pull a half dozen clips for every shot and say, look at this wonderful moment of a tiger sitting down this could work for this moment and you'd watch it and you'd cut little clips together and in our, our our reviews we would you know mostly adam valdez from mpc would pull that stuff and we would say okay that's good that that walk is good but the way he turns his head in this shot is good and so it was all stuff that we um we accumulated from from online research in disney's day of course he would actually for bambi which was a big thing for walt was um, in, in the transition from Snow White to Bambi, he really wanted to make the animals feel more photoreal. And so they would bring animals in, that's what you had to do back then, or they'd go to the zoo and have his people research moments and movement. In our case, we could really just pick things out. And then I started to use it for the actors too, because you know we would use a lot, we would key a lot off of either capture data or video, uh, video reference of the actors. But when you have people like Bill Murray or um, Christopher Walken, they have dozens of films that are available. So sometimes if they didn't do quite, if there was a look that I don't like from their performance, I would say, let's take a look at this moment from Stripes. Or let's take a look at this moment from Pulp Fiction. Uh, and, and pull a little close up and, and enclose that as a reference. And then, of course, when that didn't work, I would have to, get on my hands and knees and be the bear or put on the motion capture suit and be the gorilla. Now, where can I find that online? Oh, it'll all be... When the DVD comes out, you'll I, see me uh, I, I'll putting pay myself for in, the DVD just I'll to see you... Embarrass a, myself, yes. The favinator on all <laughs> four, fours. <laughs> um, I want to ask you, both story-wise, creative-wise, what were there constraints that you had to overcome. I mean, for instance, I mean, just in time-wise, yeah, is obviously you have a, 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 the boy can work how many hours in a day? Uh, you know, not, not as much as an adult. Uh, but it was, and there was schooling too. Right, uh, But it right. was mostly during break, summer break, which helps yeah. a little bit. But everything was geared towards that kid's time. There was never any turning around. Every shot was of that kid. Mm -hmm. So we really optimized it. But time was a constraint because, you know, these films take normally we could have used another year, to be honest with you. And, and Joyce Cox, who is our uh, co-producer and visual, visual effects producer who had worked on Avatar, the minute we got our green light, she says, we're behind. <laughs> you know, so we were breaking out. It felt like a marathon because it was many years. But she knew that at the end and what happens at the end, here's, here's what happens is you just lose um, iterations of a shot. You have to get out of Anim and go into, you have to go into uh, render and you have to go into comp before you're ready to give, sign off on the notes. So what she was protecting me from was knowing that later in the process when we were going to owe a lot of shots and be running out of time, 
I wouldn't have the time to have the level of attention to each moment that I wanted. And, and these, honestly, it's not just about your best shots. It's about your worst shots. Your worst shots can drag down your good work. You need consistency across the board. And again, the chef training was so helpful with this because with, with chefs, they're overseeing a lot of other chefs. And this one, I'm overseeing a lot of other filmmakers and artists. And each one of them has to consistently protect the vision of the overall. And how do you inspire under, and we were in the weeds, like in a kitchen. It was a, it was a Saturday dinner rush the whole time. And how do you inspire and maintain a high level of quality uh, while dealing with a, a group of people who are working under conditions that are very challenging because of the time constraints and because of just the magnitude of the work? So did you go over your $10 million budget then? <laughs> yes, yes, we did. Just, just, just a hair. Just a tad. Just a hair just over a, $10 million. Just, just, just a little bit. Um, listen, uh, this has been great. Uh, we've run out of time. I, I, I wish I had time for Q&A from the audience, but wow, what a great movie from John. Thank you. The Fabinator, can I, can Favreau. I say, can, I add, can I add one thing before we go? Yes. A few things. We're at the DGA. This is a great organization. If you're a director, I invite you. Please come on down for things. We have great events like this. But come on down and be a part of making, keeping this thing going, keeping this legacy alive. And the other thing, too, is if you're not a director but curious about it, there's, this uh, is a wonderful podcast series that they began that I can't get enough of, of Q&As like this and all, also other special events. So if you are a podcast listener, seek it out because uh, they do a really wonderful job putting this together and curating it. And thank you so much for, for coming on down. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for the shout-out, Fabrator. If you can't get enough of the podcast like our boy John, you can watch a video of all our award season Q&As on our website or our YouTube channel. You can also check out any of our preview podcast episodes from earlier this season. And stay subscribed to The Director's Cut for more Q&As and highlights from other DGA events, as well as selections from our archive. Also on our website... You can explore our visual history program with long form oral history interviews that delve deep into the careers of veteran DGA members. Check out the program at dga.org slash craft slash visual history. If you're enjoying the director's cut, please subscribe to it on iTunes or our SoundCloud page so you won't miss an episode. And leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks for listening and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.